Good morning. <clears throat> if you would, turn back to John chapter 9 as we begin this morning. It is common in Reformed churches to have a season, a session of confession, corporate confession of our sins. That's not as common in Reformed Baptist churches, uh, at least doing that formally. But that hymn we just sang is a rendition of the 51st Psalm and is a, a method, a manner of our coming before the Lord confessing our sins, especially focusing on our sins individually. But as we come to pray this morning again, uh, we will also corporately confess our sins as we move into uh, the ministry of the word here. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We do with the psalmist say, my, my uh, sins I confess Lord God, you have dealt with us in such kindness and compassion and mercy. You have not dealt with us according to our sins. You have shown great patience and indulgence. Heavenly Father, all glory and praise be unto you. Heavenly Father, we are worthy of all of thy just and holy judgments to fall upon us and to consume us utterly, not only individually, but corporately as a body, as a church, as a nation, uh, as a people living in this world, Father, we come before you. We confess our guilt is very great. We have murdered our children in the womb. We have passed laws that are ungodly and unrighteous. We have lived in ways in blasphemy against your holy and blessed name. Father, what can we do but confess our sins and plead your mercies? And we do take great encouragement, Lord God, for your word is full of so much promise that there is forgiveness with you, that you are God, are a God of compassion and of grace who blots out transgressions, iniquities, and sins. Oh, blot ours out, Father. Do not turn your great wrath against us, Lord God. Spare us yet before the great day of your grace is over and that day of judgment comes as our brother prayed that this gospel might go into the ends of the earth and gather out of every tongue, tribe, and people, and nation, a people to sing your praises for all eternity. To that end, meet with us today. Help me to preach. Help us all to hear and receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been working our way through 1 Corinthians, and uh, we are going to continue in 1 Corinthians, sort of, today. We're going to skip ahead a chapter to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Chapter 5 is a chapter that deals with church discipline, and if I were to give it a title, it might be something like this, Lessons of Purity and Order for the Church of Jesus Christ. Lessons of Purity and Order for the Church of Jesus Christ. But before we jump ahead, jump right into 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I want us to glean a couple things out of John chapter 9 as a way of preface. John chapter 9 by way of preface. I hope you listen carefully as our brother John read in our hearing the complete chapter of chapter 9. I want to look at three things 
here in chapter 9. First of all, our Lord's action. Secondly, the Pharisees' reaction. And then thirdly and finally, our Lord's remedial action. Our Lord's action, the Pharisees' reaction, and our Lord's remedial action. If you remember back in Luke chapter 4, at the beginning of the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, he had, he had been in the wilderness for those 40 days tempted by the devil. And he came back into the regions of Galilee, and he came into the synagogue at Nazareth. He came into the synagogue at Nazareth, and the scripture says, as his habit was, he stood up for to read, to read from the scroll, and he read a portion of the book of Isaiah, which talked about the coming Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to do these many things. Among those many things was the recovering of sight to the blind. The recovering of sight to the blind. In this chapter, we see a literal fulfillment of those words in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ as he restores uh, the, this blind man's sight, a man who never could see from his birth. In this passage, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, recovers, restores sight to this blind man, a, an adult blind beggar who sat and had to beg for his livelihood for, oh, we don't know, for so many years in his life. Look with me at verse 32. His testimony was this. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. And I think we have no reason to doubt that since the world began, that had never happened, that a blind man, blind from his birth, had his eyes open. When Jesus was in that synagogue, he said, as he sat down and all the eyes were upon him. Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today the scripture that the Messiah should come, be anointed with the Spirit and do these things is fulfilled in your hearing. And his fame began to grow and as he went about doing good and doing these miracles, that fame continued. Well, that was our Lord's action to make that spittle and rub it with the clay, put it on his eyes and restore sight to this blind man. What was the Pharisees' reaction? The, Jew, the Jewish neighbors, first of all, debated, is this really that man who was begging by the wayside? Is this him? And some said, yes, it's him. Some said, well, it sure looks like him. And he finally testified himself, yes, I am he, I am that man. Well, the Pharisees weren't satisfied with that. They brought him in to interrogate him. Look with me at verse 15 of John chapter 9. The Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. He said to them, he put clay on my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. They say to the blind man again, what do you say about him because he opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. 
Well, the Pharisees again weren't fully satisfied with the testimony of the blind beggar himself, so they called his parents in and they interrogate his parents, beginning at verse 18. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked him saying, is this your son? How do you say, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age, ask him, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. And then so they bring the, the once blind man again before them to interrogate him a second time. Verse 24. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, Give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that I was blind and now I see. Then they said to him again, Where, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses, as for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, While this is a marvelous thing, that you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, you were completely born in sins and are you teaching us? And they cast him out. They cast him out. After this second interrogation, the response of the Jewish leaders, these scribes and Pharisees, was to cast him out. Now a couple questions should arise in our minds. First of all, where does this authority come from? Where does this authority that the Pharisees are exercising come from? How do they have the right to cast him out of the synagogue. Turn with me to two passages quickly. We could turn to many others. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 9. Numbers chapter 9. Numerous passage throughout the Torah, especially especially the first five books, but especially the first four books, or the uh, last four books of the Torah, uh, we have many references to the people being cut off, cut off from the congregation of Israel, cut off from the people of the Lord, being cut off from God's people for various reasons and for various infractions. Numbers 9 verse 13 is but one of them. Regarding the Passover, these men had 
uh, touched a dead body and they had come to inquire of Moses, now what, we do, what should we do? We're unclean and cannot partake of the Passover. So he goes to the Lord and a judgment is rendered that they were able to come to the Passover. But out of that also comes this statute or application, verse 13. But the man who is clean and is not on a journey and ceases to keep the Passover, that same person shall be cut off from among his people because he did not bring the offering of the Lord at its appointed time. That man shall bear his sin. That man shall bear his sin. Turn over also to Exodus chapter 12. And there are numerous uh, accounts of why someone would be cut off. And I'm just citing these two as examples of where this authority comes from, how it was exercised in the life of Israel. Exodus chapter 12, verse 18. He writes, In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven shall be found in your houses, since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a stranger or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwellings. You shall eat unleavened bread. So the authority for the Israelites to cut off from them someone who had transgressed in these various ways is set up in the law of Moses. Now we get, we move ahead to this period of time and we might ask a different question. How is it that they still had this authority? How is it that the Pharisees had the authority that Moses had to exercise? We remember our Lord in Matthew chapter 23 teaches us this, the scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, sit in his place. They are his successors, in a sense, as leaders of the nation. Whatever, therefore, they bid you to observe, observe it. But then he warns them, but do not after their works, for they say and do not. The Lord fully recognized that they were hypocritical in the way that they applied these things to themselves, but much of what they taught was straight out of the book of Moses. Well, that begs a second question. A second question is this. How did it come to be exercised in the synagogue? How did this authority come to be exercised in an individual a gathering of God's people of Israelites who gathered in the synagogue? Well, the synagogue system developed over time especially when the people were taken exile, exiled by the Assyrian captivity and then later by the Babylonian captivity, living in those strange lands. Whenever they could, they banded together and formed these little communities that they were synagogues, gatherings of the people of God, a little expression of the great nation of Israel. And that system continued as even they moved back into the land. It continued as the diaspora was out in all these other places scattered. They would gather together in synagogues and endeavor to keep up the teaching and instruction in the law of God. 
and the prophets and singing the Psalms and these things. They would maintain these things through the synagogue system. Now, providentially, I think the Lord established that as a way to pave its way for the church of Jesus Christ, for there to be local gatherings of the church of Christ. So naturally, that authority and exercising that authority would fall upon each individual synagogue to some degree. The one we're reading about here in John chapter 9 was right there in Jerusalem, and the Sanhedrin, no doubt, the 70, the scribes and Pharisees who were part of that, and the Sadducees would make those judgments and rulings. And one of the things they introduced as we read in this time is that if anyone were to confess that Jesus was indeed the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, who was to come, that he was to be cut off. He was to be cast out. He was to be put out of the synagogue, cut off from all the benefits and blessings of being an Israelite, being a part of that nation. Now, as our brother alluded to, what wickedness on the part of the Pharisees. He came unto his own, we read, and his own received him not. In fact, they established a law. If anyone did receive him, he would be cut off, cut off from the nations. In many Jewish homes and circles, that is continued unto this day for those who embrace Jesus Christ. So we see our Lord's action in healing this man. We see the Pharisees' reaction in casting him out of the synagogue. And notice, thirdly, we see our Lord's remedial action. What is our Lord's response to their reaction? Look with me at verse 35, back in John chapter 9. Verse 35, John chapter 9. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, the blind beggar. And when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Lord, I believed. And he worshipped him. So our Lord recognized that this was an unjust action on the part of the Pharisees, and he went to minister to this man and to see if indeed he had become a disciple, as he described to those Pharisees. He had not, we could say, in one sense, because he didn't know who the Son of God was. But then when he spoke to him and appeared before him, then he bowed and worshipped him and acknowledged him to be the Son of the living God. Well, just a few lessons coming out of that as we move over into 1 Corinthians chapter 5. First of all, a lesson to be learned is this. Real abuse of disciplining, censuring authority does occur. Real abuse of dis dis disciplining, censuring authority does occur. One of the great objections raised often in the church is that church discipline is so harsh and it's so mean, and it is so often abused, therefore, let's just not do it. Let's just not do it. And we acknowledge that real abuse does occur, even in the Christian church. 
but we also acknowledge a Savior who comes and ministers to those who have been so abused by the false and abusive discipline of the church. Real abuse of discipline does occur. Abuse of duly constituted biblical authority, however, does not negate its fundamental legitimacy. I tried to come up with an Al Martin statement. Abuse of duly constituted biblical authority, however, does not negate its fundamental legitimacy. The fact that the Pharisees were abusing their authority does not negate the fact that God gave to the people of Israel this authority to cut off from them many who had these infractions. But there was no infraction of acknowledging Jesus to be the Christ. That's something they concocted and added. In fact, I, as I read about the whole synagogue system, they had a couple forms of censure, and it, it got very convoluted, but we won't get into that. Thirdly, third lesson to take away from this, the oft-quoted adage, power corrupts, is not true in the abstract. It is not true in the abstract, but it is certainly true when that power is put into the hands of sinful, unprincipled, and proud men. It is certainly true when it is put into the hands of sinful, unprincipled, and proud men. We all ought to take a sober warning as we see that how did the Pharisees become so hard of heart that they prejudged the Lord Jesus Christ and they witnessed his miracles and continued on in that prejudice and hardness against acknowledging who he truly was. And that should be a warning to us. Note the arrogance of these Pharisees. They had already prejudged and concluded that to recognize Jesus to be the Christ was a sin to be punished by expulsion from the rights and benefits of God's people, the Israelites, under the Old Covenant. Their pride is on full display in their response to the blind beggar. You were completely born in sins, and are you teaching us? Hear that, feel that, sense the arrogance exuding from them. When this blind beggar says, well, here is a wonderful thing. This man's opened my eyes. He's opened the eyes of the one who was blind from his birth, and you won't acknowledge even the miracle and the wonder of what is done here. Their pride was on full display. Oh, brethren, let us guard our hearts here. Let us guard our hearts here. Let us bear these things in mind. Let us guard against pride as we come to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Turn there with me now, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. That was by way of preface. Sorry that it was that long, but 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is a somewhat short chapter. I'm going to read it in its entirety and then... Uh, We'll dive into it. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in body, but present in spirit, 
have already judged as though I were present him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Consider with me seven things by way of outline as we uh, race through this passage. First of all, a common report. Second, a dereliction of duty. Thirdly, an imperative instruction. Fourthly, a purifying reproof. Fifthly, a tempered distinction. Sixthly, a religious responsibility. And seventhly, an, a reiterated injunction. First of all, a common report. Look again at verse one. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. Now this word translated actually in the New King James and many other versions, the ESV, is translated commonly in the King James Version. One version translates it universally. This may be overstating the, the word a bit, but I think it's getting closer to the meaning of holos, is the word in Greek. We might say it is widely reported. It is broadly reported. It is generally reported, perhaps not universally, but there's a broad reporting of what this man has done. It's, it's publicly known. This is a thing well known, publicly known, and seemingly not contradicted. So Paul writes, <clears throat> here is a thing well known. It's a common fact a commonly reported thing that this was going on. What was well known? Was, what, what was so extensively reported that Paul, when writing this epistle, remember, is in Ephesus. He's in Ephesus, but he hears news of it. Well, what was reported? Reported was that fornication of a gross variety, sexual immorality, was tolerated among them as a church, but more than this, of such a scandalous nature as would make even the Gentiles blush with shame. 
that a man has his father's wife. Turn with me, if you would, to Leviticus chapter 18. Leviticus chapter 18. In the book of Leviticus, it sets out what are the bounds of marriage, if you will, and what is forbidden, those close of kin to us, that we are not to marry with. Well, who was this man's wife? Perhaps it was a second wife. Perhaps this man was dead, the father was dead, and he had taken up with this woman. We don't know exactly what the case was, but that seems to be the case, or it would have spoken of her as his mother. And I don't think that was the case. Leviticus chapter 18, uh, jumping in at verse 6. None of you shall approach anyone who is near of kin to him to uncover his nakedness. I am the Lord. And the Bible is discreet in its language here. It's a euphemism. This nakedness is something beyond his nakedness. It refers to some kind of fornication with that person. Verse 7, the nakedness of your father or the nakedness of your mother you shall not uncover. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. The nakedness of your father's wife you shall not uncover. It is your father's nakedness. You put your father to an open shame if you act in this way, if you are committing sexual immorality with your father's wife, even if she's not your mother. So this open scandalous skin was, sin was going on, and this man was being tolerated within the church, a sin that even the Gentiles would condemn. The Gentiles by nature, not by the law of God, but just knowing by nature that this was a thing unheard of and a thing that was evil and a thing that was not to be done. Well, that brings us in the second place to a dereliction of duty, a dereliction of duty on the part of the Corinthians. Look at verse 2. And you are puffed up. This is going on in the church, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you, that he might be taken away from among you. They were puffed up. They were inflated, full of themselves, as we say, full of hot air or overinflated ego. They were proud of their tolerance. They were proud of their broad-mindedness. Here at Corinth, the church in Corinth, we're very broad-minded. We let all kinds of sinners come into our church, and we let them exercise and continue even in their sins, even to their thinking the wide extension of grace. Grace is extended, and we continue to allow these kind of things to go on. Well, Paul rebukes them for it. He says, you are full of pride in thinking this way. You're inflated with your own self-importance to think that these kind of sins should be indulged in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, pride can run in various directions. Pride can run in various directions. We saw in the Pharisees the pride of learning, the pride of place and privilege, the pride of power had blinded them to their own promised Messiah. That was the pride that blinded them, blinded the very eyes 
to the Christ who was there in their midst. In Corinth, they were proud of their liberality, their broad indulgence of sinners among them. Not that they had gone to the extreme of some of the churches in our day who celebrate sexual deviancy and perversion of numerous kinds, but they thought that just leaving them in their sin and the full enjoyment of church privileges, they would eventually come around, perhaps. We'll just let them go on in their sin, and the Lord will do the work without the church taking any action. And Paul, rather, abruptly awakens them to their duty to rather they should be mourning over the situation. The response to someone in the church indulging in such evil sins should be mourning on the part of the congregation. You have not rather mourned. They should be mourning and mourning to a specific end, that the violator, the one who has done this, might be taken away from them. Now, it's an interesting verb here. And this verb is here in the passive uh, tense, in the subjunctive mood. So it's a passive thing. They're mourning in the hopes that he might be taken away from them. Now, you go down to verse 13, and he says, Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. He uses the same verb, but there he uses that verb as an active future action that is to be taken on the part of the church. Their first response should be to mourn, to be grieved over what's going on right in the very church. In addition to that, they have to take actual action on behalf of the church. So we see here the dereliction of duty that Paul calls them to account over. Thirdly, we see an imperative instruction, an imperative instruction. Paul says there's something you need to do and to do it quickly. Notice verse 3. For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has so done this deed. Paul's already passed judgment. Well, Paul, is it, is, it, is it for you to pass judgment? Is it for Paul to pass your way over there in Ephesus? Who are you to assess these things and to pass a judgment? Now, do you think Paul perhaps was just acting in his capacity as an apostle? And he says, I'm an apostle, therefore I've passed this judgment. I don't think so. As we noted already, the deed of this man was well-known, right? It was public. It was well-publicized. Look with me at a couple verses. Uh, chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. Chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. I do not think Paul had come to an irritated, hasty, snap judgment. He heard about this. Paul's kind of upset about it. And he says, I've judged already. This man ought to be cast out of the church. And notice in chapter 1, verse 11, he says this, For it has been declared to me concerning you, brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Uh, we covered this earlier, the, the divisions going on in the church, the sectarianism going on, and the reports of that had reached Paul, whether in Ephesus or somewhere else in his journeys, that this was going on, and no doubt, reports of what this man was doing 
had reached his ears as well. Turn with me also to the last chapter of 1 Corinthians, chapter 16. 1 Corinthians, chapter 16, and verse 17. There he says, I am glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. For what was lacking on your part, they supplied. For they refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore acknowledge such men. So sometime during this period that Paul is at Ephesus, these men had come to him and ministered to him, and Paul was rejoicing at their visit. That is all to say that there were visitors coming to the Apostle Paul and no doubt brought testimony of what was going on openly and publicly there back in the church at Ephesus, for which Paul still had a great concern, as he says, the care of all the churches uh, fell on him. And while the apostle is using his authority to lead and instruct the church in this matter, he is not superseding or unilaterally overriding the church's authority and responsibility in this manner. Notice what he goes on to say. For he judged already, verse 3, and this is his judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you are gathered together as a body, as a church, along with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, where does that come from? Ask yourself. Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. The exercise of this authority is to be carried out by the church body. Paul from afar, however, is instructing them and leading them and urging them to get on with the task. Paul has not abandoned the principles of two or three witnesses being necessary uh, to come to such judgments. Turn with me back to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. We have that paradigmatic instruction of our Lord as to how we're to address offenses among brethren and in the church of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 18 and at verse 15. And this, I trust, will be familiar to you, but you'll see how these principles do not uh, mitigate against each other, but rather coincide. Verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. That's always the goal. But if he will not hear you, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him, do, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Paul had not abandoned this principle of two or three witnesses being necessary. He will speak of that elsewhere in his writings. So the method and aim or goal in all these cases of church discipline is what? Is to get that brother to repent and to return unto the Lord. Notice what he goes on to say. To hand him over to Satan as a means to that end to hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh as a means to that end, that he would come 
to the end of himself. Remember the language we heard back in the law. He shall bear his iniquity. If he transgresses in this way and he's cut off from Israel, he's going to have to bear his iniquity by himself. He's no longer going to have the benefit, as it were, of the sacrifices of the nation of Israel. No longer the benefit of the Passover. No longer the benefit of those things prefiguring what? That great Passover, our Lord Jesus Christ, who would suffer in our stead. So they would be cut off from that. If they're in the church, they're cut off from the benefits we enjoy in Christ. Cut off from those things and handed over to Satan. It's a fearful thing. It's a trembling thing. We sometimes wish this language wasn't there, but we're, on the other hand, glad that it is to see how significant it is that being cut off from the church is to be cut off from Christ and to be handed over to Satan. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19. Paul writes to Timothy, having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I deliver to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, a quick read of this, we might come to the conclusion. Here's an example of the Apostle Paul unilaterally using his authority and apostle to cut these men off and to hand them over to Satan. But I don't believe that's the case. I believe no doubt that Paul followed these other steps in handing them over to Satan. But no doubt he took the lead and he perhaps took it more expeditiously because the sin in their case was heretical teaching. A heretic after the first and second admonition reject. Paul would write to Titus later. So we see this handing over to Satan language being used elsewhere, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. If you refuse Christ, you have to be the sin bearer of your own sin. If you refuse Christ, you have to be the sin bearer of your own sin. That's the fearful thing of this whole punishment. Well, that leads us in the fourth place. We're going to have to move quickly to a purifying reproof, a purifying reproof, moving down. Verse 6 of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Your glorying is not good. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Having instructed the church in her proper duty in carrying out church discipline, he now reproves them for their underlying error and gives further teaching as to the need for maintaining purity in the church of Christ. Now notice these things can go on at the same time. Paul's instructing them what kind of discipline they need to carry out, but Paul hasn't forgotten the fact that they have this broad-minded liberality in their theology that needs to be corrected. And he does so by saying, your glorying is not, this is not good. 
that you're glorying in your broad-minded ways. Why? Because it's going to corrupt and deteriorate the life of the church. A little leaven is going to leaven the whole lump. If this is allowed to go on in the church, it's going to spread. It's going to grow, and the whole church is going to become an inflating, uh, inflated and puffed up with this self-indulgence uh, that you're engaging in. Your glorying is not good. So he goes on to say, verse 7, Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. Okay, Paul recognizes you are truly the people of God, a true church of the living God. You are an unleavened loaf. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Paul doesn't take them beyond, but he brings them back to Christ. Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. You are the true unleavened bread of Christ being offered as a thank offering, as it were, before him. You are to live out these things. Purge out the leaven that's going to corrupt, that's going to putrefy the life of the church. And then he goes on to say, Therefore, verse 8, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Carry on. We're not going to keep uh, the old feast, as it were, of the Passover, but the picture of that Passover we are going to keep. That binding together of us, of our finding redemption in a Passover, that we were all passed over by who? By Christ, our Passover. And we're going to keep that feast, perhaps expressed especially in the Lord's table, in the Lord's Supper. Paul is not calling the Corinthians back to keeping the Passover. I know that's a growing popular idea these days. That's not what he's doing there. He's using that picture to instruct them to keep the feast, as it were, by recognizing Christ to be their Passover and living together in sincerity, by living together in truth, love, and sincerity together. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us, purge out any leaven that's in the church, and live in purity and holiness before him together as brethren. That's what he's calling them to do. And put away this mentality that we can indulge people in their sins in the membership of the church. Well, that leads us in the fifth place to a tempered distinction, a tempered distinction beginning at verse 9. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Well, what do we learn here? We're reminded here that Paul had written them an earlier an epistle. We talked about that earlier in our exposition of 1 Corinthians an epistle that is lost to us, but among its instructions was something about their not keeping company with the sexually immoral. But perhaps Paul wasn't completely clear in that because they thought, boy, we have to keep away from all 
the ungodly in the world because Paul wrote to us to keep away from the sexually immoral. Instruction, brethren, is always cumulative. We don't get it all in one setting. We don't get it all in one epistle. We don't get it all in one portion of the Word of God. Those things build upon each other, and it behooves us to be Berean and search the scriptures to put the pieces together and understand the whole instruction in this area of church discipline, in this area of living out the Christian life in our relationship to the world, as well in our relationship to those within the church. Let us take in the whole counsel of God and not cherry pick our theology, or as Peter writes, be not like those who rest or twist the scriptures to their own destruction. Don't take one portion of scripture and so twist it and apply it that we don't see it in its full analogy of faith, the analogy of scripture, the whole counsel of God taken together. We can err in that way. And the people of God had somewhat erred here. And perhaps in part, Paul says, I didn't mean what you're taking from what I said. Listen to everything I have to say. And therefore he corrects or adds and elaborates on what he was saying. Interaction with godless pagan world, worldlings will be our common lot while we're in this world. We are not going to escape them unless we go out of the world. We are at times to be light and witness to them. We are to be a light and witness to the ungodly around us. At the same time, observing the words of our Lord, that we need to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. As we go out into the world and interact with the ungodly, be wise, be wise as serpents, be innocent and harmless as doves in our actions with them, in our speaking to them, but don't be trapped or tricked into their nefarious ways. Secondly, Jesus would go on to say, do not cast your pearls before swine. Do not cast your pearls before swine. Christ has given us precious pearls in the things we know and love in the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. We should not cast these willy-nilly before the ungodly because they're only going to trample them underfoot and turn on us in the end. We need to guard our hearts and guard our lips in good and godly ways when interacting with the godless of this world. But what about our conduct among professing Christians? Our conduct among professing Christians. What did Paul mean then in verse 11? But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother. Named a brother. Is he only speaking about those within the membership of the church of Corinth who we've named brothers? Or is he speaking more broadly to anyone who is called a Christian? and how we're to conduct ourselves with them in our relationships. Well, I think it primarily refers to those within the church and how we're to conduct ourselves to them if they're behaving in these ways that are completely inconsistent with their Christian profession. But I believe in principle, it carries over to our interaction with others who profess to be Christians. Not that we... Uh, despise them, but that we would be careful in our interactions with them, that we do not join with them as if, hey, you're a brother in Christ. 
when they're behaving in ways that are completely contrary. We are to withdraw ourselves a bit from their fellowship, lest we condone the wickedness they're engaged in. It's a fine line to walk, brethren, but God calls us to walk it. Let us take heed to Paul's instruction in this manner. It's a tempered distinction that we need to draw and to make. Sixthly, sixthly, a religious responsibility, a religious responsibility. Notice with me uh, verse 12. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? Brethren, here again is a fine line to walk between judging and judgmentalism. Judging and judgmentalism between assessing and evaluating the character and conduct of our fellow professing Christians and, on the other hand, making a hasty, unsympathetic, hypocritical condemnation of another. We read recently in, in the scriptures, uh, Matthew chapter 7, Judge not that ye be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. That should be a warning to us. Let us not be hasty in making judgment of others, because we're going to be judged, as it were, by that same standard. Beware of being hypocrites in this manner. But going on in that same chapter, Jesus instructs his disciples that they are to judge those who claim to be prophets and to judge them by their fruits, to judge them by their fruits. We need to be judging. God calls us to judge those within, to look for their fruits, to squeeze that fruit, to see if it's ripening, to see if it's real fruit or just a fake pretense of religion. Now we need to do so carefully and walk that line carefully, but God calls us to judge those. Those who are without, outside the professing church of Christ, we can, as it were, leave to themselves in the sense of, it is not our responsibility to go and get in their face and condemn them. We can call them to repentance, one and all, but it is not our place to go and judge them. It is God's place. Those who are outside, God judges. So in a sense, we leave them to themselves. Well, that leads in the seventh and final place to this. A reiterated injunction, a reiterated injunction, or perhaps we could say an injunction with the force of the responsibility fully. Verse 13, but those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Now Paul calls them back. Remember your duty and responsibility. He gave them instruction on how to carry this out. Now he exhorts them to do it. Put away from yourselves the evil person. Put them out of the church. Why? For the glory of Christ. For the glory of Christ, that his name be not tarnished and associated, that his grace would not lead to this kind of wickedness of life, as if to associate that with the religion of Christ, with the calling of Christ upon Christians, to keep the church pure from being corrupted, by allowing such people to remain in the congregation and we're having to tiptoe around them and not to confront them openly with their sin. It's going to lead to all kinds of problems. The response should be this. 
put away from yourselves the evil person and remember with the hope and prayer and expectation of what? That they may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Well, it's a hard chapter, brethren. Uh, it searches us in many ways of our responsibilities. Just a few lessons to carry away and we'll be done. First of all, we must be a church that walks on all fours. What do I mean? That endeavors to be faithful in every area of the Christian life and of churchly ecclesiastical responsibilities. Every privilege and duty and responsibility that Christ calls us to, we have to exercise. We would gladly just walk on three, right? Hobble along as we were, kind of a incomplete church and never go about having to exercise church discipline. It's so unpleasant. It's so disruptive to church life in the congregation. Let's just forget about that. But we can't do that in faithfulness to Christ. God calls us to this, and where need be, we must be about doing it. Secondly, the door into and out of the church must be guarded by biblical principles. The door into and out of the church must be guarded by biblical principles. We can't just let into the church those who show no clear repentance from their sins and turning away and some measure of grace in their lives. We should receive only those whom God has done that work in. At the same time, those who manifest and evident a rebellion against Christ, who've walked away, turned away, we must at the same time follow biblical principles in putting them out of the church. Thirdly, this is often what we refer to as corrective discipline, when the church has to come to the point where they have to put someone out. Theologians talk about what is formative discipline. Formative discipline is the structure which will make corrective discipline less disruptive. Formative discipline is the structure which will make corrective discipline less disruptive. If we learn from the scriptures, if we're gathering in the whole counsel of God, if we're growing in our understanding in the full panoply of the scriptures of the New Testament, what it teaches, even in areas like this, on church discipline, if, we're, if our ideas, our convictions are being formed and formulated through the constant attention to the scriptures, then when in a case comes up where we have to exercise corrective discipline, it will be less disruptive to the body of Christ because it will become plain, it will become obvious, and though painful, yet we'll all recognize that it is needful. Fourthly, we must watch and pray because, notice what we saw earlier, abuse of power is always a ready and apparent danger. We must watch and pray that we enter not into temptation. Watch and pray because abuse of power is always ready at hand. The devil's always trying to drive us one way or the other. Drive the church of Corinth to be very broad-minded and liberal. Drive some other church to be very, very harsh and always exercising church discipline for the minor infractions that go on within our midst. So we must be watchful and prayerful against that. Fifthly, we must mortify pride. Pride will derail the church on either side. 
in either case, on either edge. It will drive us overboard, whether we're proud and puffed of the fact that we're liberal and broad-minded here, or whether we're, oh no, we're, we're all about church discipline and we're gonna exercise it tooth and nail, wherever it crops up, even the slightest infraction. We need to mortify pride that we don't fall into the air on the right hand or on the left, that we follow Christ in these matters and may God give us grace so to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess, we readily confess, your word is true and altogether just and righteous in its pronouncements. Father, though we uh, hear it uh, with trembling and perhaps even with diffidence, Lord God, may we hear it as the word of Christ. May we receive it and its instruction and be guided by it, Father. And it is our prayer that you would help us, that you would form us into a people of uh, firm convictions that we would walk that narrow way that leads to life, that you would keep us from erring on the right hand or the left, keep us from pride, keep us from uh, bringing dishonor and discredit to your holy and blessed name, but that this church might be pure to honor and worship you and that you would be glorified. And this would lead, Lord God, uh, for the furthering of your grace and power and the keeping and preserving of a gospel unto this world. Keep us, we ask this day, and be glorified for all. In Jesus' name, amen.